0: Chapter Three of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Terese. Chapter Three Trillium was twenty, a convent young, dreamy twenty, and very happy. Not only was she happy because of the present moment, but because the future, as it met her and became the present, seemed to promise exactly what she wanted. Running down the stairs with her thin blue veil lifting around her face, Trillian paused on the landing to look over the eighty-two other veiled heads, exactly like her own. Blue, if the promise came true, she would be wearing the white veil of the novice when another All Souls day gathered the convent company in the big main corridor. No one, as yet, knew of her secret hope, although Mother Theodore might have guessed. As soon as her mother's letter arrived with the expected permission, she would go to mother and ask to be admitted with the next class. The news, of course, would travel, and soon there would be about Trillium, that aura of awe surrounding all girls who had announced their intention of taking the veil, and the veil itself would be most becoming with her fresh complexion and dark eyes. "'What are you mooning about, Trill?' Mary Elizabeth called, fluttering a hand to distinguish herself from the masses. "'Come on, or you won't get in line with Helen and me.' Trillium sighed. There was nothing saintly about Mary Elizabeth, except the way she looked, her blonde hair and blue eyes accented by the veil. Helen, small and dark, was Trillium's twin in appearance, and her second inseparable companion. What these two would say when they knew of her decision to enter the convent, Trillium could well imagine. For ever since their freshman year, the three had planned to be bridesmaids at one another's wedding— Smiling mysteriously, Trillium descended, but her aloofness on the stairs had set her apart long enough to draw Sister Osmond's eye. "'The bouncer's sending out distress signals. I guess it's you, Trill,' Helen said. "'Hurry up and we'll keep a place for you.' Sister Osmond, looming large above the girls, held up a plain white envelope. Because the envelopes were always the same distinctive size, longer than an ordinary letter, Trillium knew even from a distance that her wait was over— her mother had replied, You haven't time to read it now, dear, so you'll do an errand for me, won't you? Sister Osmond suggested, handing her the letter along with a yellow envelope. This telegram just came from Mr. Archer. Run over to the guest house with it and then go straight along to Mass. Certainly, sister, Trillium replied. She slipped her own letter into the pocket of her white dress. Mr. Archer's telegram felt important folded and thick in its envelope. It must be very long and very expensive. Sister Raymond passed her through the east door, and Trillian came out into the perfect morning. Behind her, the processional line moved smoothly through the open door on its way around the buildings, and up along the bayou to the cemetery. She would have to hurry if she didn't want to be late, but the arrival of her mother's letter filled her with a peculiar sadness and a faint stirring that she did not recognize as apprehension. Her throat was tight, with the excess of emotion, possible only to the very young. I must be alone, she thought, alone in this first moment, and started slowly across the lawn toward the guest house. She could not face her friends, the dear friends whom she soon must leave behind. Surely renunciation would claim a few minutes, particularly when she had Sister Osmond to give her an alibi. Picturing her own lovely movements, she felt that she floated across the lawn, a tear, a crystal tear, cool on her cheek. It was embarrassing that one eye always wept more easily than the other, in these over-emotional moments. Enjoying herself immensely, she stood still, her eyes closed. If she had been gifted with second sight, and a revelation of what lay in wait for her with the turning of the knob on the guest-house door, Trillian would not have lingered in her romantic dream. She would have stood trembling, instead with eyes strained wide for final appreciation of the peaceful safety of St. Aurelian's. And she would have known then, also, that her supposed vocation was only affection for certain people, and a place and a routine and a reluctance about leaving them all, an analysis that would have been gently made by Mother Theodore at the proper time. But Trillium wandered, still in her dream, down the flagged path and up the two steps to the tiny stoop, and knocked at the guest-house door. There was no answer, no breath of sound from inside. From far over at the cemetery came the first chant of the asparagus, and Trillium knocked quickly again. When there was still no reply, she turned the handle of the door and entered. She was in a small hall from which opened several doors, all standing ajar. The first she investigated was the living room. How masculine it smelled already pipe smoke, leather, shoe polish, turpentine from Tolbotzin's paints. The room was cluttered with several packing-boxes, and their contents piles of books, golf clubs, tennis rackets, a stack of canvases turned face to the wall, a beret, and two caps on the Davenport. The private possessions of all three tenants sprawled companionably together. It appeared to be a jumble that would remain as it was, granting the removal of the packing-cases, and Trillian giggled. Why, they're all sloppy as can be, she said aloud. She could imagine Rindy, the colored maid, rolling her eyes and muttering when she came in to clean. Rindy was used to convent neatness. How would she ever work her way through this? Even the mantel was loaded with a pile of books, ashtrays, a can of tobacco, trinkets. Trillium's gaze tripped over an object and hauled it, fixed upon it. Her heart stopped for a matter of seconds, then gave a sudden flip and thumped until it shook her. The sisters had set a statue of St. Joseph in the place of honor, centering the mantle. Now, beside him, his cat face smug and his paws embracing the world, was a six-inch silver image. The girl remained still, staring at it as if the thing had eyes to see her. She could not think. Her brain would not work. Only her heart was alive, choking her. How many minutes went by she never knew, for time had ceased. The clock tapping somewhere in the room did not warn her to hurry. Nothing existed but that hideous little god upon the mantel. She thought of his name first, Billikin, the god of things as they ought to be, and then she remembered that there are many Billikins, just as there are many Buddhas, and certainly there would be in the world more than one made of plaster and painted to look like silver. "'Of course this isn't the one,' Trillium exclaimed, even laughing a little." The paralyzing fear eased. She went softly over to the mantle, never wondering why she should be warned to silence in the empty house. With her hand outstretched, she paused. What if this figure did have the mended break? It couldn't, but suppose it did. Wouldn't it be better not to know? Before her drag could mount again and stop her, Trillium seized the small god, felt him cool in her palm, and turned him around. She had known it would be there, the little brown vein of glue, the plaster chipped white along its edge. Her mother had said the blemish would not spoil Billiken. No one would ever notice. But now it was a brand. Trillium's hand left the figure to clutch the edge of the mantle. Memory was a wild thing, running loose. She saw her father, huge in the cramped quarters of the houseboat, desperate, grim, shouting that he would not have that bounder giving presents to his wife and her mother, small, dark-eyed like herself, emphasizing his roughness by her own withdrawal. He looked upon her silence as a taunt. He'd knocked the billikin out of her hand and left with such tramping violence that the dishes rattled in the cupboard. Her mother had picked up the little figure, fitted in the broken part with glue, and that night Trillium had lain in bed, knowing her father had not come back, but hearing a whispered conversation in the next room, between her mother and the stranger she never had seen. The next day the billikin was gone. He had taken it, and brought it here? Trillium touched the gob with a shaking finger, turning him back to his former position. It was imperative that she leave no trace of her presence. She dared not think farther now. She had to get out of this place. Stumbling over the litter, Trillium was at the door before she remembered the telegram. She had been going to lay it on the table. That was what brought her in. The table, like every available surface, was burdened. With a sweep of her arm, she knocked a pile of books to the floor, then picked up one and propped the telegram against it. Then she fled. An onlooker would have concluded that Trillium ran so swiftly because she was late for Mass. A second glance would have set him wondering what punishment the sisters inflicted on latecomers, for this girl was obviously in terror, it was a terror, however, that had nothing to do with tardiness. As she ran, a sickening realization came to Trillium. She did not know the present identity of Billiken's owner. She never had seen the man on that one night. His name, she knew, had been Jim. None in the swamp, never even heard his voice above the whispering of the three was named Jim. Yet, Billiken was here. Had he changed his name or given the trinket to someone else, to Archer, Eric, or Tolvutzen. Trillian forgot to slow down and catch her breath before actually coming into the cemetery, and so she was still panting from her exertions when she hesitated at the beginning of the long, open aisle. The scene was beautiful, familiar, and it called up inconsequential things. Old Sister Hattin's conviction that it would rain, the stout optimism of the farmhand's wife, Glory Muckleroy, and Glory's faith had triumphed. The morning was ideal for the outdoor mass, the sunlight infusing golden life into the magnificent stone crucifix, with its figure drooping above the altar. Flanking it were the tombs of the sisters, dazzling white from recent cleaning, each bank with chrysanthemums, which reflected a sunlight of their own. The girls in white with their blue veils, the sisters in the protective cohort of freshly pressed brown and black, the white-veiled novices unobtrusively at one side, the Muckleroys with all their children, every employee and inhabitant of St. Aurelian's was in attendance, and, ending the far curve of the crescent, the three new instructors, all down on one knee, Franz Eric with his head bent, the other two observing the ceremony with solemn interest. Trillium, still at the end of the aisle, knew she couldn't walk the distance she must to reach Helen and Mary Elizabeth and the place they had kept for her. She would be too conspicuous. He might be attracted by the movement among all those quiet people. Look over, Ask afterward who she was, and he would know her name. No one was named Trillium. It's all right, dear. Go on, Sister Osmond whispered, close to her, and the girl realized she had been standing there much too long. She would have to go. She started up the aisle. What did it matter if he did find out who she was? That old incident was over, if death could be termed an incident. Torvotsen glanced towards her an archer her eyes skidded away to the priest to the blue veils to mary elizabeth's profile turned as far as permissible without looking back the scene grew misty so near did she come to fainting but she kept moving with the peculiar sensation of the ground rolling toward her while she herself stood still the congregation arose and trillium sheltered slipped in front of mary elizabeth to her place Helen passed over a missal. When the girl took it, the thin pages fluttered, and Mary Elizabeth put out a hand to steady her. It was not unheard of for girls to faint at Mass, particularly when they had gone long without breakfast and there were no chairs to sit on. I'm all right, Trillium whispered. And almost miraculously, she was. With commonplace sights and sounds around her, Trillium regained enough self confidence to draw away from her apprehension and look at it clearly. In the first place, there was no certainty whatever that the Billikins still belonged to Jim, or that, because the little god sat on the mantle of the guesthouse, Jim must be one of the three new instructors. Someone might have even have given the image to Mother Theodore, who had placed it where it was. But that was too far-fetched an idea to entertain. Mother would not set Billikin up to rub shoulders with St. Joseph. She would go to Mother Theodore and tell her the whole terrible story, the tragic part Jim had played in her life. Her suspicion that he was here on the campus. And Mother would listen earnestly, and a few days later would call Trillium in and tell her it had all been explained. I need not bother my Mother with it all, the girl decided, and touched the letter in her pocket. For the moment she had forgotten the pleasure in store for her. Mother Theodore would be pleased to hear of another vocation. There were so few these days. By the time the Mass was over, Tolium had nearly recaptured her earlier expectancy, and the crowd breaking to straggle back into the building, she was able to lose Helen and Mary Elizabeth. They would insist that she go with them straight to the dining room for breakfast, and she couldn't. She had to read her letter. Alone, she ran across the lawn to the west door, up the stairs along the corridors to her room in the east wing, and locked herself in. Throwing herself on the bed, she tore open the envelope. She had been smiling in anticipation when she began to read, but at the first line the smile stiffened. Hastily she skimmed through it, dazed and fearful bewilderment growing in her eyes. Oh, no, she breathed once, but there it was in her mother's writing, not to be denied. A fit of trembling seized her, and she rolled over on the bed, the letter crackling under her. She didn't cry when she could sit erect again, she picked up the crushed page and forced herself to read it through deliberately. As she read, the cold stillness inside her grew, until it kept her even from trembling any more. My darling, I fear this letter will come as a shock to you, but there seems to be no way I can spare you. I must disappear again. The truth is, dear, that Jim is somewhere in the vicinity of New Orleans, and has been trying to find me. It must be that he suspects I am coming close to the evidence I need to prove that he killed your father. I have known all these years that your father did not commit suicide, but there was no proof. Now we are in search of a witness, who must have seen the whole thing happen. I cannot tell you more about it now, dear, but it will be a satisfaction for you to know that your father was blameless. I can't pretend I'm not in danger, because I am, but I'm taking every precaution. Jim is blaming me for what he did himself." all these years his fury has grown against me. I think now that he was keeping silent in order for me to build up a security he could destroy. No matter what happens, dear, say nothing. My life may depend upon this. Nothing could happen to you there, and it is a great comfort to me to know you're safe, and I know what he is doing. Above all, dear, don't mention this to Mother Theodore, and please don't worry. Henry will forward my letters to you as usual." There was a little more, a few lines about the mother's happiness in giving a daughter to God. The daughter, however, lay curled upon her bed in a tight ball of fear, tears filling her head to bursting before they finally soaked into the pillow, the blue veil pathetically crumpled across her face. Against her closed lids she saw two figures, her mother, sad-eyed and remorseful, a hunted victim, and the silver billiken smirking on the guesthouse mantel. No longer was she in doubt as to the identity of Billiken's owner. It was Jem, Jem who now bore a name her mother had not known when she read Trillium's account of the three, whose arrival had then been imminent. Say nothing, no matter what happens. Only what could happen in the security of St. Aurelian's. Nothing, except that her father's murderer had taken up residence on the campus. Girls were wandering up to change into skirts and sweaters for the day. Someone knocked on Trillium's door— called, rattled the knob, and went away. Trillium lay still. She had an enormous welter to think through. Once she picked up the letter again to re-read a certain sentence. Above all, don't mention this to Mother Theodore. But why? Mother was so good, so wise, so... The girl checked her rebellion swiftly. Always she had been an obedient daughter, not only because she loved her mother, but because the two were alone in the world. And their first loyalty was to one another. That was the way it had to be, else each would stand entirely alone. All that was necessary had been put into the letter. Reasons, of course, would be satisfying, but not required for her obedience. So now I cannot go to Mother Theodore. Julia made herself hammer home the thought. Very well, what then? Write to Uncle Henry? No, because the word would be passed along to her mother and there was no point in adding to her worries yet. She might even come to St. Aurelian's, if she knew, and Jim would have his opportunity. A seizure of trembling shuddered through her, so that under her the bedspring made timorous little noises. i have to decide a course for myself and follow it, Trillium told herself firmly. Mother Theodore would approve of that. Even though I can't consult her, I can act as I think she would advise. The girl sat up, seeing herself in the dressing table mirror, pink-cheeked and eyes with a deep-washed look of recent tears. She had changed in seven years, grown from a little girl with a Dutch bob into a young lady with a fashionably long haircut and lipstick. He would never associate the child with this college senior, unless he heard her name. "'I'll manage so he won't,' she whispered, watching her lips in the mirror. "'I'm really too dumb to take on anything extra.' So Sister Amphar will think I'm just being sensible when I ask to be dropped from the art class. I'll say I need all my time for my other studies. And if I don't take a class from any of them, he'll never hear my name. I'm not pretty enough or brilliant enough to draw attention. Thank heaven. People don't talk about unremarkable other people when they are very remarkable people themselves. I'll just be one of the crowd, and he'll never know me. And the minute he gives himself away, so I'm sure which one he is, I'll telephone to Uncle Henry and tell him to get out the bloodhounds. Trillian jumped off the bed and began to pull the hidden bobby pins out of her veil. Jim probably had no intention of harming her, but he might try to pump her, to find out where her mother had gone. "'Well, he'll see what a clam I can be,' she declared aloud. "'I'll be so perfectly naturally uninterested that none of those three geniuses will ever notice me. I bet they're all too stuck up to see us, anyway.' The jocular air of the girl in the mirror was pure bravado, but it helped. Trillium folded the veil, pulled off her dress, and got into a rose sweater and tweed skirt. She herself was in no predicament. She could not ask Mother Theodore to receive her into the convent, not until she knew what this billikin gem business involved. But after all, that meant only a postponement. A faint relief accompanied the thought, but Trillium was not yet ready to admit it was the dream that had intrigued her and that the reality was more than a little frightening. In the pit of her stomach there was a queer emptiness, as if her fear had made a vacuum. "'Golly, I'm hungry!' she exclaimed, and slammed open a drawer to hunt for her rose anklets. She had missed the late breakfast, and there would be no other refreshments until the middle of the afternoon, when the juniors served their traditional tea in the parlors. Down in the kitchen the food committee would be at work, cutting out sandwiches in the shape of stars and crescents. Fancy tidbits would not do for Trillium. She would get the kids to make up a whopper, and she could take it out into the shade and have a private picnic. She was fairly light-hearted when she opened her desk and slipped the letter in. Then, frantically, she snatched it back. Hide it in her desk when anyone coming in to borrow some paper might see a line or two and wonder? And run to Mother? All her fragile self-confidence gone. Trillium sank down on the little study chair, So this was how it would be. The one big decision to keep her secret would not suffice. There must be a constant watch for small slips, an endless sly planning to make all her actions seem normal, when every minute she carried the most unnatural burden in the world, if you were for the life of a beloved one. I can't do it, she thought wildly. I can't. I'll run away, deep into the swamp until the mud sucks me down, and I can crawl under the cypress knees. I'll know, there, if anyone follows. I'll hear the splash and plop in the mud. But she couldn't run away, because then they would hunt for her, and her name would be shouted all over the campus. No, she must not show by word or action that she had anything on her mind. All she need do was watch and be careful. Through the entire school year he might remain quietly following the schedule mother had worked out for him, and never suspect Trillium's identity. And so long as he was here, he could not be endangering her mother. Oh, I can make a million pesky little plans if I have to, she breathed. It's worth anything. I can do it. Trillium seized the letter, about to tear it into bits. With the first split in the edge of the paper, she paused, staring at it. She could not destroy the letter, the only evidence in the world outside of her mother's knowledge that her father had not committed suicide, and it pointed out his murderer. The memory of what she had almost done with the letter, placing it in her desk for anyone to see, was shattering, and she pricked herself several times as she fastened the envelope inside her slip with two large safety pins. The girls did not intentionally pry into anything. It was just that you might walk across the lawn and meet your green anklet and your charm bracelet and your sweater, each on a different person, and at the same time yourself be wearing things belonging to two other people and all the articles would have been secured by simply going and taking them. No one minded. "'So you'll stay there, honey, until I know what to do with you,' Trillium said, patting the letter in her bosom. Her appetite was gone, and the emptiness giving her a clear-headed detachment quite removed from physical sensation or emotion. She knew now exactly what to do. Since it was a holiday, many of the girls had gone into Marysville— and would not return until time for the tea sister Onfroy was not in her office trillium found her out in the cloister walk pacing slowly with her rosary in her hand sister Onfroy was the registrar and therefore accustomed to dealing with changes of mind she listened to trillium's apparently frank account of troubles with chemistry and history the prodigious amount of time it took to do these subjects justice and finally her invention of frequent headaches the headaches were a mistake "'You need a lot more fresh air, child,' said Sister Enfoy. "'Something to take you outside, you see. "'None of you get outside enough. "'I couldn't sign you up for tennis. "'I'm sure there are already too many for the one court. "'But I'll put you into golf and fencing. "'Won't that be nice, dear?' "'Oh, sister, I don't believe—' "'Trillium began. "'You don't look well, not at all well.' Trillium tucked her hand under the brown serge elbow. "'I'm perfectly fine, sister. Only a headache once in a while, but not very often. I mean, I'm really in wonderful health. I'd love the golf and fencing, but—' "'Then you shall have them,' Sister Anfrey declared. "'Mr. Eric is an exceptionally fine instructor. I've wondered why he consented to come here.' "'Oh, don't misunderstand, child. I feel that he will profit as well as ourselves.' "'But still—' Mother showed us those wonderful pictures of him taken at last year's Mardi Gras, I believe he was king of the parade, and... The sister wheeled suddenly keen to Trillium. Why don't you want to take these instructions from him, dear? Trillium was startled. Oh, but I do, sister. It's sweet of you to put me in like this at the last minute, and I just appreciate it heaps. I know I'll feel better being out in the fresh air. And, sister... "'If you wouldn't mention to Mr. Eric that I signed up so late, well—' Sister Enfroy patted her hand. "'Of course I won't. He doesn't need to know he was an afterthought. Drop into my office in the morning and I'll have your schedule ready.' Trillium thanked her and escaped. "'I couldn't have done much worse if I'd thought it out for a million years,' she ruminated bitterly. "'Out of the frying pan, into the fire. Or was it?' Wasn't Mr. Eric too young to be Jem? Helen, smitten already, had been conjecturing about his age in the shower room this morning, and had started a discussion in which no two people agreed, the only unanimous sentiment being that he was the type, with his dark good looks and gracefulness, to look young until he was fifty. So he was old enough. That the fencing and golf entailed individual instruction had intrigued the girls this morning, to Trillium it was the most formidable detail in the art class, Tolvotsen might have come to look over her shoulder, perhaps criticize her work, but his attention would be more upon the drawing than upon herself. Mr. Eric, on the other hand, would be concerned with her stance in golf, her grip of a sword, and she dare not drop the course now. Already she had drawn far too much notice from Sister Enfoy, who might pass the word on to Mother Theodore, and Mother would question her. Trillium was so weary that her apprehension turned to rebellion against this circumstance, which bound her like Prometheus to the rock. Reaching her own room again, she lay down and, in spite of her worries, fell asleep. The supper bell woke her. She had a dull, pounding ache in the top of her head. Because I fibbed about it, she thought, drowsily, and this is my punishment. As she lay there, half awake, the ache seemed to be the billiken doing setting up exercises inside her skull. Fingernails rattled on her door, and Mary Elizabeth poked her head in. Trill, where have you been all day? We missed you at the tea. What's the matter? Nothing, Trilliam yawned. I had a nap. Well, you look like you could stand a few morsels. Helen's just about ready. Meet us on the stairs, will you? The blonde head was withdrawn. Trilliam got up, put on too much lipstick, fixed her hair, and wondered how she could keep from being conspicuously ill. The ordeal of marching to the cemetery to-night, with his eyes upon her, would be too great an endurance test after all she had gone through during the day. "'I'll not go,' she decided abruptly, and opened her door. Sister Laurent, the prefect, who supervised the girls on this floor, was just passing. At the sight of Trillium she stopped short. "'My dear child, how ill you look!' and on this night of all nights. I was a little worried about Kathy Thatcher. You know how she reacts to over-excitement. But I never thought of you. Sister Lauren bit her fingers as she always did when perturbed. No tragedy could be more complete than to miss the old soul's procession to the Marysville Cemetery. I'm not at all ill, sister, Trillium said quickly, but her brown eyes were wide with alarm, and she glanced past the sister into the deep shadows. I'm tired. You know how you get a lot of tiredness piled up. I think I'll stay at home tonight and read. Sister Laurent bit her finger so hard that she winced. Trillium of all people, chattering about staying at home with a book when she hated reading and had been known to write book reports on movies she had seen. She hadn't even been considered for Mister Archer's class in creative writing, and as for reading, Trillium, you seem to be afraid, Sister Laurent said quietly. The sister was young, her own school days not many years behind her, and she was used to keeping the girl's little secrets. But Trillium apparently had no intention of confiding in her. Such a spasm of terror passed over the young face that Sister Laurent involuntarily glanced around them. I don't understand, Trillium, she said in apology, but of course you needn't go to the cemetery tonight if you're not up to it. I'll stay with you, I don't mind at all, My brother sent me a box of chocolates and wheel.' Trillium smiled, but not before the shadow had flitted again over her face. "'No, I'll go, sister. I'll feel much better after supper. Thank you for offering to stay with me, but I'm going to be right there with the others.' As she hurried after Helen and Mary Elizabeth before the sister could protest. Stay at home with a sister in attendance to emphasize her unusual behavior oh no there must be nothing out of the ordinary trillium warned herself in the twilight with the flickering light of candles as the only illumination dressed exactly like the others in long white with a wreath of flowers she would be one of the crowd again it was unnerving to realize how nearly she had blundered once more her tension gave her a false gaiety and through supper she laughed and talked with animation but when supper was over she ran up the back stairs to her room and dressed quickly even to the final touch of fastening the wreath in her hair. She looked lovely, but she didn't take the customary pleasure in it. Only one concern occupied her now. She had to get out of the building without seeing Sister Laurent, because Sister had not been satisfied with their conversation and she might decide it would be wise for Trillium to go quietly to bed. How lucky, she thought, as she let herself out into the hall, that she had no roommate, no one to question her. Through the closed door next to her own she heard the giggling of Helen and Mary Elizabeth, and across the hall where five girls roomed together there was a waterfall of laughter. Trillium walked slowly to the stairs leading down to the main floor, then caught up her long white skirt and sped down. It didn't matter much where she went, for when the bell ordered the forming of the procession she would join it, and every one would be too excited to ask where she had been. Coming out at the west entrance, she half turned into the cloister walk, but over at the far end of the lawn, the bayou lay in primeval elegance. Trillium stepped onto the green grass. Primeval elegance was her own term, and she had used it in a description of the bayou, which had fascinated Sister Raymond into giving her the only A she ever had had on a theme. Thinking of that proud achievement, Trillium raised her white skirt daintily above the grass and drifted along. This was not like the dream of the morning, when she had crossed the lawn to the guest house, but only the inevitable reaction of youth to the pleasure of the moment. Under it, pricking her, was the sharpness of what she knew. When she reached the soggy ground bordering the water, she turned to the right to stroll behind the contemplative's house. This was the least used part of the grounds. Farther over, directly behind the convent enclosure, were the farm buildings. No one came here except High Muckleroy cutting the grass. It was startling, then, for Trillium to have the impression that she was being watched. She stopped dead still, one foot forward for another step. Her eyes started over the lawn to the distant row of Glory Muckleroy's sunflowers rimming her garden back to the solid wall. No one there, yet her scalp had needles dancing on it. Then to the swamp, and she saw the man standing precariously on a cypress knee, poised as if he mocked his own danger. He had watched her come clear across the lawn, and that, she thought, is how a spider sits watching a fly draw near its web. Mr. Eric did not appear in the least spiderish. There was a sleepy air about him, like that of an interrupted reverie, and Trillium caught herself wondering if his charming half-smile had been directed at cypresses before she came along not wishing to appear frightened she clasped her hands before her and gave a small nod mr eric she said softly good evening mademoiselle i see you are not afraid of snakes sir the bayou is full of water moccasins his eyebrows went up as if amused but she was gratified to observe that he glanced somewhat apprehensively into the twilight under the trees the fluted cypress trunks streaked high before the foliage began and across the floor of the swamp were thick gray roots thrust up like knees above the water to allow the trees to breathe. That there was water at all was hard to see, for it was hidden under a bulbous tangle of hyacinths. Mr. Eric, Trillium thought, must have leaped from that last bit of solid shore to his perch on the knee. But even as she thought it, he stepped lightly off to the thickly woven plants, and then to the dry land. The frail blossoms were barely crushed, Trillium stared wide-eyed at Franz Eric. With pleasure, he returned her inspection. In short-sleeved white with a long skirt touching the grass, dark hair crowned with white flowers, and a childlike mingling of alarm and admiration banishing whatever sophistication she might have had, Trillium was lovely. You might have gone through, she exclaimed. The hyacinths aren't solid enough to walk on. I'll remember that next time, said Franz. The child was entrancing. Something about her seemed familiar. His own young sister? He shook his head. Trillium, fearing that the conversation might take a personal turn, and he would ask her name, hurried into the first subject that crossed her mind. I'm glad you like Pirate Cove, Mr. Eric. It's named for a real pirate, Dominic Yu, one of the Lafitte gang from Grand Isle. There were no Hyacinths in those days, of course, they were brought from Japan much later for an exposition, and some of the planters set them out in the bayous and They ran wild when Dominic and his men escaped up here in a skiff. The water was clear, and it was a perfect spot to elude capture. The men were given coffee in the convent kitchen, and Mother Adrian entertained Dominic in her own parlor. really Franz encouraged her the same parlor where we were received, no doubt. Trillium let her hands steal up to cover her heart, for it was pounding so that the tiny white buttons on her dress quivered. Mr. Eric's scrutiny had become something she could not read, and her chin went up. "'The story is true, sir. Dominic Yu is a tradition with us. He was a very respectable pirate. He was the only one to go into business later in New Orleans and be buried in a tomb with his name on it. I've seen it myself.' Franz bowed, hiding his smile. "'Sorry, mademoiselle. I don't doubt your veracity. I was merely picturing mother Adrian. was it—serving her thick French coffee to the respectable pirate. If she resembled Mother Theodore, it would have been well worth seeing.' "'Oh,' said Trillian, rather flatly. "'She must go. The speculative light in Mr. Eric's eye was growing by the minute. The bell in the convent garden clanged. Never had its insistence been more welcome.' Good-bye, Mr. Eric, she said with a second note of the bell, and turned to run across the lawn. But you haven't told me your name. Sister Laurent will scold if I'm late for the procession. Good-bye. Like Dominic, you, Trillium fled, but where the pirate's pursuers had paddled swearing through the swamp, Trillium's supposed one did not pursue at all. When she looked back from the corner of the convent, she saw that he was still standing watching her. Franz laughed aloud. He had hoped she would look back. The moment the white figure vanished, he was off around the back of the cloister toward the guesthouse. The white ranks were a refuge. Trillian caught up her candle and chrysanthemums from the table, where Sister Ignace was dealing them out, and chilling the flame with her hand, she took her place beside Helen. "'Where were you, Trill?' Mary Elizabeth behind her breathed down her neck. "'We can't talk now. We're starting.' the pitch pipe wheezed, the singers began, and the procession moved slowly down the road to the big gates. In the village cemetery a half-mile away, the people heard the singing and saw the train of candle flames, and became as quiet as one person. When the procession came in among the tombs, even the unbelievers were impressed. As it wound along the paths that were the streets of this miniature city, one girl after another turned aside to place a burning candle and her flowers before the tomb of a friend or relative. Passing the place where Toltson, Franz, Eric, and Crispin Archer stood, many faces were shadowed, trilliums among them, because she had laid her memorial before the first neglected tomb she saw. Franz, watching for her, and Crispin, watching them all, did not see her, for as she passed them she looked quite naturally away, toward a monument topped with angels spreading their wings, and in the semi-darkness she had many twins. It's unearthly towards inside, sighed. No man could paint these young faces and do them justice. Trillium heard him. She held her head turned away, very still. Don't be afraid. Don't stumble. Don't draw their attention. Take one step, then another. Was that how Daniel forced himself to enter the lion's den? End of chapter 3